0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast with your host, Eric P. So powerful. Bound not only of
1: place it is. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety.
0: and welcome to Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter. I am known as Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Uh, Today is Wednesday, the 28th of March, 2018. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots so buckle up and let's get started
1: a little bit better and don't be a brand new kid to show biz with knowledge i persevere but if I now do me a favor favor let favor. me in here then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the base with a
0: taste of light i gotta tell you people i don't i don't even know where to begin uh it's spring break week i'm in the middle of the week right now it's been a nice week it's been crazy it's been a long time since i've done a podcast the last one was october 24th of last year So we're in the era of Trump, of course, and that's why it's been so exhausting to, first of all, in my life, I've got a student teacher this semester, I've got um, an overload, which means I'm teaching six classes instead of five, Uh, I'm the building rep for our union, I'm involved in East Timor work, of course, I'm sponsoring like two or three clubs, depending on what week it is, at our school. I just feel like I'm running all the time. I do the video game podcast every week with the veteran gamers. What, what? Stu, chinny, holla. And uh, it's just there's just so much going on. So, you know, the weekend, I'm so worn out, and uh, the news cycle is just nuts. You know, I mean, on The Daily Show, there's a segment called Ain't Nobody Got Time for That, about how crazy everything is and how much stuff happens in a day, right? It used to be that the 24-hour news cycle they were looking for stuff to report on. They were making up news, or not making it up, but they were you know dragging out things that really weren't very important. But now, they're all racing to, you know, cover everything there is to cover, and it's just really rough. So, the most recent thing was the Stormy Daniels interview on 60 Minutes, but, you know, there's also John Bolton is now going to be the national security advisor for Donald Trump. John Bolton was one of the major cheerleaders for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which was a horrible war crime, and now he's talking about Syria and North Korea. We haven't learned, well, he hasn't learned anything from history, and the question is, are the people of the United States going to learn enough from history to avoid making those same mistakes again? And look, let's look at it from a pragmatic point of view in terms of what's going on in terms of the Middle East. Like, just take Syria, right? Let's take Iran and Syria. We, we've always seen it. Even if we give people the best intentions in terms of Iraq and Afghanistan, oh, we all had the best of intentions. The planners, they wanted to make the world safe for democracy. That's always the line, first of all. And second of all, let's say, okay, let's say that's their intention. That Let's just take 50 years off, shall we? We've had a lot of work on our plates for the last 50 years in terms of keeping the world safe for democracy in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq. Let's just say it's somebody else's turn to make the world safe for democracy. And of course, if we were to think about it in those terms, we would realize instantly it's never been about making the world safe for democracy. It's about the U.S. national interest. Well, what's the U.S. national interest? Hegemony? I don't know what that word means... Nobody does. And we can't talk about U.S. foreign policy without talking about hegemony because that's a central tenet of our activities around the world. So, whatever. I I feel so, it's hard to know what to say for me. You know, I've got news stories from three months ago. Who knows if they're even interesting, let alone important. Um, But I I feel the need to talk to the world because everything's messed up. And I feel like it. It can always be worse, and there's always hope. I'm I'm a relentlessly hopeful person, not optimistic. Cornel West once explained the difference between optimism, which looks for uh, you know hints about how everything's going to be fine, but hope, blood-drenched hope, is how Cornel West said it. Is about you know looking at things as they really are and then finding ways to fight back. And that's what I'm all about. And and as I've said before, I'm sure, my involvement in the struggle for East Timor provided me with that relentless hope. You can never extinguish my hope now. I hope. I mean, who knows what the future holds. But I believe that you know there's always hope for humanity because East Timor sometimes seemed like a hopeless cause. A lot of people told me it was a hopeless cause. And so having survived that, and when I say survived, I mean, you know, I went to college and I was really sad. You know The people of East Timor survived that struggle, and a lot of them didn't make it, but a lot of them did, and they never gave up, and they, they taught me how to fight using nonviolent resistance, and, but standing up for justice and never accepting good enough until the goal was won, and then realizing, okay, now the goals are different, and, and, it's, and it's rough. So anyway, um, yeah, I have that hope. And, and I think the March for Our Lives, the student walkout, this month has been an amazing month for the activism of young people because this is the biggest mobilization of student activism since the Vietnam War. There's been plenty of other student activism since then. I got to tell people, you know, don't, don't believe the hype about the apathetic young people. It wasn't true in 1995 when I was a young person. It's not true in 2018. It's never been true. The question is, you know, what form is the activism taking? And what results is it having? And what are the ideas and the insights that young people are willing to share? That's really important. And then on the flip side of it, those of us who have been in the struggle for a minute, what are we doing to support and to uh, share our perspectives in terms of please don't make the same mistakes we made. Okay. And as I've always said, the number one mistake I see young people making is getting fed up, getting frustrated and burning out. You're going to get fed up. That's part of the system. That's part of the game, okay? Being in the struggle means, being an activist, being an engaged member of society means you're going to be bashing your head against certain walls over and over, and you're not always going to get media attention. One of the nicest things about the student walkout and the March for Our Lives is that it got a lot of media attention, which is great, but sometimes that's not going to happen, and you have to keep fighting anyway, and... um you know, the the the. A lot of times, people get that frustration, and they they feel like there's no point. They feel like there's no, you know, use in continuing with it. And I know that feeling. That's why I haven't done a podcast in a while. Is I feel like, well, what's the point? Is this really a good way for me to spend two hours of my life, and you know, three if you factor in all the uploading and the editing and you know all the rest of it. So, whatever. All all that is to say that. Older activists need to help younger activists understand how the struggle has worked for us. And, you know, here's some things to keep in mind as you go out down this path. Uh, We'll see you on the other side. You know, I'll be there with you. Uh, You know, keep your head up, fight the power, all that stuff. If you're down to fight the power, here's the power to fight, as Public Enemy said. So, yeah, um, it's been real inspiring to see that. Uh, The question is, will it result in new gun control laws that's really the the question and for those who don't know there was a shooting in Parkland Florida uh and Marjorie Stone Douglas uh I think I'm saying that right, uh, high school, and a bunch of the students got organized and they they created a walkout uh, around the country. There were 3,000 different events, one at the high school where I taught at and then a bunch of the high schools in uh, Madison where I live. They converged on the Capitol, and it was an amazing turnout. And then this past weekend on the 24th of March, there was another march uh, with a lot of older people as well, but organized by students, which is great to see. Um, it was real hard for me to get anybody to take part in protests when I was in high school Uh, and college, you know, I went to a very small school. So having, you know, protest there wasn't really a thing because there was nobody to protest to. We were in Sarasota, Florida, and it felt like we were very far from the decision-making areas. It's interesting. There's this dynamic that happens all the time. And by the way, if you're expecting some sort of structure here to this episode, I I don't know what to tell you. I, I have a lot on my mind and I'm, planning on just sort of talking for a while so there's always this tenuous balance between being close to the locus of power and being far away from it yeah i've heard people who do work out in the field in the so-called third world you know providing water for people and, and you know fighting the power in east timor for instance in mozambique or wherever I've heard from people who say, oh, this is great work, I'm doing important stuff, but I always feel like I ought to be in Washington, D.C., I could have an impact that's so much greater than just the individual building of a well or, you know, helping out in a school or whatever it is. But then people in D.C., I've heard them say, well, I wish I was out, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, actually doing stuff that would make a difference for real people in their day-to-day lives. So there's no right path. There's no right way to make a change in the world. There's lots of places where change needs to happen. And there's always going to be a place where you could be more effective. And you have to accept that, you know what, look. You have to make some decisions, you have to put in work, and then you have to say, okay, how can I be more effective? Do I want a structural change? Whatever. But at a certain point, you also need to say, you know, this is the life I've made for myself. And, you know, hey, look, if you're the type of person who likes to change your life a lot, great, go for it. More power to you. I am not. I tend to be a creature of habit. I have a higher tolerance for repetition than most people, and I really like to have a set way of doing things and then just sort of do it. Yeah, I'll give you an example. And some of you have heard this already, but my favorite restaurant in the world is called La Fiesta in Gainesville, Florida. La Fiesta! It's magnificent. Every time we go to Florida, I have to eat there. I grew up in Gainesville where that restaurant is. And I went there, you know, what, once a month for, you know, all of high school uh, when I went to Sarasota, Florida for college, I travel back once every 2 or 3 months or so and I would eat at La Fiesta usually more than once. Um when I moved back to Gainesville for a few years, I ate there once a week maybe. Uh it was just, you know, it's my go-to place. I love it. I love it. I love it. I've only ever eaten one meal there. It's the enchilada dinner with cheese and onions. It's fantastic. I'm I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. And I'm the type of person who let's say that's a 7 out of 10. Okay, it's, it's a great meal. I love it. Let's just say it's a 7 out of 10. There may be things on the menu that are better. There may be restaurants in the world that are better. There may be restaurants in Gainesville that are better. But if you roll those dice to order something different on the menu, you could roll a 9 or a 10. That's true. But you could also roll a 4. And then I'd be stuck there thinking, and this is part of how my brain works, man, I could be eating my cheese and onion enchiladas right now, and instead I'm eating something that's not as good. I'm frustrated that I I never like to be in that situation and dwelling on the thing I had that I knew was awesome rather than this other thing that might be there. Uh, I'm happy to just give thanks for what I have and try not to dwell on the other thing I could have. Now, the one area of my life that's not like that is in terms of me being well known. Yeah, Getting recognition for my writing, for instance, being able to talk to big groups of people. I would love those things. And I feel like I don't get much of it. Now, again, it's, it's kind of absurd for me to say that because right before spring break, the day before spring break, I had two students say amazing things to me. One of them, she was on her way to Machu Picchu for spring break, and she said, I'm taking a copy of your book up to Machu Picchu. I'm going to take a picture of me with it up there. Because I had shown the students, you know, Tara with the, the sandwich rung for in the London Underground and Hector with it in East Timor and, you know, uh, Sedalia up on... Uh, Mount Ramallah with it, and like, that makes me incredibly happy to see my work make it on. I realize if she does that, uh, the student taking it to Machu Picchu, then my work will have been into four continents, North America, South America, Europe, and Asia, and the other three are going to be a little trickier. Australia won't be too hard, I don't think. Uh, Antarctica, I have no idea how I would get my book to Antarctica, and then Africa. I think I have some people that I might know. I know a guy who's been to Antarctica, but anyway, the point is, that's a part of my brain that fixates on I want to be famous, I wanna get interviewed on podcasts about writing, I want, you know, e viewing to praise my work and all this stuff. It's 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 not healthy, I know. And it's it's so weird that I it's the opposite of how I usually look at things, right? Be thankful for what you have and forget about what could possibly be better in your life. Because I know that I am, you know, near the top of the material positivity pyramid, right? If we were to look at all of humankind, there's a lot of people who, for instance, live on a dollar a day or $2 a day. Um, There's a lot of people who don't have enough to eat or, you know, know where the next meal is coming from or they don't have access to clean water. I've got all those things. And then, you know, I've got a job that brings me satisfaction and and I, I, I know I'm adding value to the world and I'm doing good in my life and I have a comfortable life besides. I have free time. I have a loving wife. You know, I have my health. Like there's so much in my life that is just amazingly blessed, and I, I for me to then go, yeah, but I also want to get books published. It's ridiculous. So that's enough of that. Um, yeah, there's 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 been so much around me that I've thought to myself, I want to talk about that on the podcast, and then I don't write it down, and then it evaporates because there's all this other stuff coming in. Um, so what am I going to talk about? Well, first of all. There's the fuel. I've I've had this idea in my mind for a little while to write a book called The Fuel, and that's because David Simon, the guy who made The Wire and Tremé and The Corner, and he created well, he wrote a lot for Homicide: Life on the Streets. I don't know if he created it, but anyway, he's in the Deuce is his latest thing on HBO. Uh, they there, he's made a lot of really great TV shows, and he was on Twitter at one point. There was some misunderstanding. He called me a head, and I. I made it clear, someone else made it clear, because he blocked me, I guess, on Twitter. And then someone else made it clear, oh, wait, no, he was making a joke, and here's why, and, and whatever. And he goes, oh, oops, I'm sorry, I'm a little fast on the trigger sometimes. And I said, you can make it up to me by giving me a quote for the back of my next book. And he said, the man who wrote this is not a head." And so uh, <laughs> I just I started thinking that day okay, what well, can I put that on the back of, right? I mean, I could put it on the back of anything, but I thought it would be really cool to write a book called The Fuel, which is about the things that keep me going, the media that has been most useful to me in terms of fighting the power, so to speak. So, you know, The Wire has been very important for that. Public Enemy and The Coup have been very important for that. Um, Noam Chomsky has been very important for that. Uh, you know, I'm talking about like media that I've consumed, right? And I think that, that sort of thing, whatever. So so I want to talk about a few things that have been like that for me in this era of Trump. Because, again, when I talk about burnout, one of the things that can help us to avoid burnout is to, A, remind ourselves that we're not alone. And, B, get a soundtrack, literal and figurative, that supports the narrative that we can tell ourselves that we're engaged in a long-term run for justice and freedom And that we want to avoid willful ignorance and silo blindness and simplistic thinking, but we also don't want to abandon our principles. So, you know, Black Panther, for instance, is one of those things. It's a great movie. It's a fun action movie. But it's also a really important story. Um, for a lot of reasons. The representation of things in Black Panther is one thing, right? It was a, a black-directed, it has a mostly black cast. I heard a great joke on Twitter. Um, uh, uh, Andy Serkis, who uh, played Gollum, he's in it. And Martin Freeman, who played Frodo, is in it. Uh, and, sorry, Bilbo. And um, so they're uh, white guys in Black Panther. They're the Tolkien white characters. Which, I mean, come on, that's pretty funny. You got to admit. Now, when I tell that joke most of the time, people go, "Uh, it's that, you know, and that's all that happens at school. I mean, I started to realize I'm never going to get the kind of reactions I hope to get when I tell a joke or I put up, you know, when the students come in every day, I put up a GIF or a picture or a cartoon or comic or something that I found online. Just share with them. I want, you know, just to make their world a little less dreadful and dull. So I scour the internet. I save these things. I spend, you know, five, ten minutes every day choosing the one for the next day. And I always hope that they're going to come in and go, oh, that's awesome. Or, ah, that's hilarious. But they come in and they go, eh. That's it. That's all I ever get is, eh. Or, yeah, I saw that yesterday on Reddit. Like, it's such a joyless reaction. Always. Any joke that I tell, it's always "Eh." like that's the best I'm ever going to get. So it's, it's tough because all suffering is the conflict between what you expect, what you hope, what you desire. And then reality, you know, if we didn't have that ex that discrepancy, there would be no suffering in our lives. So you can try to improve your reality. And in some ways you should, but most of the time it's about, you know what? Okay. I got to let go of those expectations. I got to let go of that desire. That's the, one of the noble truths of the Buddha. So anyway. Black Panther, what was I saying? Yeah, it's an important story. Even if it weren't all about the representation and the power of you know this African nation, it's, it's a, there was a, ugh, I didn't save the link, but there is an interesting perspective on, I think, uh, Al Jazeera, of somebody in, I think, Nigeria, who was talking about his impression of Black Panther from a Nigerian perspective. And he said, it's a, it's a Western movie. It's made for Western audiences, by Western audiences. Wakanda is in many ways a Western nation. Now it's drawing on certain African traditions, and that's cool. But he said, you know, we we can't look at it as an African story. It's it's a story about the African diaspora. It's about Africans in the West. Um, and the, the the point that he made that was so good was, um, it's really telling that you can you can't get. It's easier to get a, a crowd to uh, get a lot of money to hype this Western movie in Africa than it is to get a thousand dollars to make or promote a Nigerian film that was made in Nigeria. Uh, And I think that's very important for us to keep in mind is that as much as we celebrate this fictional place in Africa, you know, this Wakanda is awesome. There's no doubt about it, but there are beautiful things coming out of Africa itself. Right. Um, So I've been on this jag of uh, getting African electronic music and hip hop Uh, through Spotify and and other places. So, anyway. um, But the best thing I read about Black Panther, one of the best things, uh, is from The Atlantic. And I want to get this person's name because I don't remember who it was that wrote it, but it was a really good piece. Um, It was written by Adam Serwer, uh, February 21st, 2018. It's called The Tragedy of Eric Killmonger. The revolutionary ideals of Black Panther's profound and complex villain have been twisted into a desire for hegemony. And he makes it clear that, you know, the the kill eric the spoilers for black panther if anybody hasn't seen it or anything like that skip ahead 10 minutes i suppose um yeah I, I don't know uh so the 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 character of eric killmonger you know t'challa is the hero of black panther he is the black panther and eric killmonger comes along and tries to challenge him for the crown and and whatever whatever uh it talks about, okay, so here's an excerpt from the article. It is The movie is first and foremost an African-American love letter, and as such, it is consumed with the void, the psychic and cultural wound caused by the transatlantic slave trade, the loss of life, culture, language, and history that could never be restored. It is the attempt to penetrate the void that brought us Alex Haley's roots, that draws thousands of African-Americans across the ocean to visit West Africa every year, that left me crumpled on the rocks outside the door of no return at Goree Island's slave house as I stared out over a horizon that my ancestors might have traversed once and forever, because all they, have lo- all they have was lost to the void. I can never know who they were, and neither can anyone else. And so the point they make is that Eric Killmonger represents this sort of, the soul uh, uh, that was sort of lost to the void in an attempt to, you know, um, reclaim certain things about his Africanness, um, the, the title that he just feels he deserves. Uh, and 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 this idea of rebellion of fighting back against the oppression of colonialism and racism white supremacy and the rest of it he 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 becomes consumed with the desire for hegemony and at one point he says the sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire which is obviously a reference to the British Empire um, this notion that we will go from being subfer- subservient in in the diaspora in general Africa overall to being isolationist, in the case of Wakanda, to being imperialist and hegemonic uh, throughout the world. And it's an important piece. Please read the whole thing. The point is that my frustration with Eric Killmonger is kind of the same as Magneto, right? The, 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 the militant is always the bad guy. The militant is... is all. And we saw it in the Fight for the Planet of the Apes or War for the Planet of the Apes, whichever one it was. We see this over and over in Hollywood films. The notion that the more moderate, let's find a way to work it out, let's be peaceful and loving, um, that voice is is the one that's predestined to win. And it's, I mean, look, it's weird for me to be arguing about this because, of course, that's the perspective I believe in. I believe in nonviolent resistance. But I also recognize there is a place for militancy and that there is a reason why militancy comes about. And it's not just, as in the case of Black Panther, in a way, it's not just, you know because of a personal slight it has you know Malcolm X didn't become Malcolm X because just because of personal issues that was a part of it but it had a lot to do with the insufficiency of a more moderate approach as he saw it and i think that when we oversimplify and demonize militant characters we run the risk of making them seem like simplistic individuals and militancy to be, well, I don't blame you for being angry, but, you know, that's obviously stupid. That's a simplistic way, that's a child's way of looking at militancy. And we need stories that do a better job, I think, of giving a more nuanced take on militancy. And and not that, you know, X-Men and Black Panther don't give some nuance, but it's usually, you know, oh, this person had a right to be angry, we can understand how they got to be this way, but everything about their approach is nevertheless wrong. Because everything about their approach, in the case of Killmonger and and, and um Magneto is not just we demand our power, we demand the right, as Malcolm X said, to be a man, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, at this time, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. That's what Malcolm X was arguing for. What Killmonger and Magneto are arguing for is the elimination of the other side, is a war for supremacy. And there's a very important difference there, right? We, we have to look at all the ways in which militancy has manifested itself throughout history around the globe in a way that was just about survival and empowerment and having demanding a form of equality not supremacy and so i worry that people's minds get those two things twisted that militancy is always and forever about supremacy when it is not inherently linked to that so that's all i have to say about that um yeah, I wrote down notes about Charlottesville Nazi terrorism and North Korea and Jerusalem. I feel like, you know, again, what am I going to say about those things? What What is there for me to add to the discussion, especially in 2018 when we have access to so many different points of view, when we have so much talking and so much noise coming at us all the time? it's easy for me to doubt myself and ask myself, you know, am I really going to add anything to this conversation? And I appreciate people who have told me in various ways, you know, I appreciate what you said there, you know, after some, I think it was after Parkland, maybe I posted on Facebook, axes don't cut down trees, lumberjacks cut down trees. But if you give the lumberjack a pool noodle, it'll take them a much longer time to cut down that tree. And people, you know, shared it and they liked it. And, you know, there was a very positive response to that. And I, I'm happy to see that because, you know, I, that's one of the things I like to do is write. And I think I can put words together in an important way and share ideas, right? And I think that cuts at the heart of this silly guns don't kill people thing. Well, technically it's correct, but it's not any kind of meaningful correct, right? That certain tools make jobs much easier and guns make killing much easier. That's why every military on the planet uses guns because the job of a military is to kill people. So what does it say about our society that we are so in love with guns and we're unwilling to even consider uh, meaningful changes into that control policy? And thanks to the Duchess, what, what? Because she shared with me yesterday, Judge uh, Stevens from the U.S. Supreme Court wrote a really interesting piece for the New York Times that was said, we should repeal the Second Amendment. And he quoted U.S. Chief Justice Warren Berger once upon a time who said, the NRA is guilty of the most massive fraud ever imposed on the American people in the form of the idea that the Second Amendment means there should be no restrictions on gun ownership, uh, which is not the way that the Second Amendment has ever been interpreted. And now, you know, a lot of people believe, and I, I think it's fair to say that the Second Amendment is a relic of ancient times and it has no relevance to our modern Perspective on things, but there's such a fanaticism about it that um, it's unhealthy. And and I would be okay with repealing the Second Amendment. I think that when people hear that, they think, "Oh, I I want a ban on all guns." And to be honest, I I I don't. You know, okay. So my problem. There's a book called The Sympathizer by. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I heard him talking in Madison not long ago. Anyway, he, it, it starts out, I can see both sides of everything. And I think that's a problem I have too. I understand that some people live in sketchy neighborhoods and so they need a gun to protect themselves. Okay, I, I, I can understand that. The, the problem is that the more guns we all have, the less safe we all are. So if it's true that you need a gun to protect yourself from the people around you, that's what everyone else is thinking. And self-defense turns to the offense, as uh, Cypress Hill once said. It's so easy. Every good guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun until he turns into a bad guy with a gun. And it doesn't take very long for that to happen. It can happen in an instant, right? You could be a good guy with a gun for 20 years, and then you have a horrible argument with your wife, and then, you know, your rage spins out of control, and you become an evil, horrible monster with a gun because you shot your wife. Like, that happens a lot. So, you know, what did Australia do when they had their horrible massacre in, what was it, 96? They Their conservative government said, we got to get rid of these guns. And they did. And, and you know, Japan has some of the toughest gun laws in the world. And they had one gun homicide last year, I think. So the idea that we can't do it is just nuts. And the idea that we shouldn't do it, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about elimination of all guns. I don't think it's likely to happen in the United States. But I do think that we have to challenge our fetishes. We have to challenge the fetish that so many Americans have about guns. Uh, and we have to, you know, get rid of half of them at least, right? I think most people will be all right with that, right? Not your guns, just half of the guns that are out there. If you have 10 guns, how about you just have five? That would be a good way for us to start. So anyway, but again, like what, I'm not saying anything new, right? It's so easy to feel like I'm just spinning my wheels and just adding more noise into the world, and that's the last thing I want. So I'll move on. Um, there have been a lot of men being terrible. Speaking of men being terrible, uh, you know, this wave of revelations we've had in the last two years of, you know, uh, Weinstein and Bill Cosby and all the rest of them... You know, Kevin Spacey, it breaks my heart, right? I always thought of him as being a kind of a cool guy. But, you know what? That just goes to show that you never know. Because people can appear to be totally awesome, and then they have this horrible truth lying within them. And, you know, nobody's perfect. And sometimes people are terrible, and they appear to be cool. I was especially sad to see the charges and, you know, the confessions, basically, uh, from Charlie Rose and Tavis Smiley and Morgan Spurlock because they are three people who, two years ago, if I was going to write The Fuel, they would have been in it easily. Like, just no question. They're three of the most awesome producers. You know, Morgan Spurlock made Super Size Me in 30 Days and uh, Inside Man and, uh, you know, Where in the World is, is Osama Bin Laden? He's made a lot of really important movies and TV shows. Tavis Smiley is one of the most important interviewers that's ever been on TV. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. And same with Charlie Rose. For them to have been engaging in this disgusting, typical male behavior is sickening to me because I thought they knew better. I thought they were better people than that. Now, Tavis Smiley famously said, some of us should not be the some of us, which I think is true. But on the other hand, um, I don't know how to finish that sentence, you know. I can't support Tavis Smiley. I can't support Morgan Spurlock right now. They need to go away. They're done, at least for five years. I mean, you know, dedicate your life to understanding why what you did was wrong, how you make sure it never happens again, and how you atone for it. Those things are so important, and in our society, the idea is, well, I'm just going to go away and then maybe people forget and I'll try to reboot my career or something. And, and in the meantime, people go, Oh, is it fair that they got tried by in the media? Blah blah blah. That's not the issue. The issue is what are you doing about this transgression? And that's true about every issue, right? I've hurt people in my life and, and, and I have to be sober in accounting for it and trying to say, what am I going to do about it? So, whatever. That makes me sick. And Aziz Ansari, I think, is especially remarkable. Because, okay, so for those who don't know, in the case of Aziz Ansari, this woman went home with him. He was really trying to spit game at her, I suppose you could say. And she, you know, went home with him. Whatever. They were making out. She was trying to stop. He was being very insistent. Uh, She describes it as one of the worst nights of her life. They had sex. It wasn't good for her. It was basically horrible, but she never said no. And she never, you know, she doesn't say she was raped. And it's one of those you know, situations where a lot of people talk about, well, it's gray area. And men immediately start going, well, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know how to flirt. Eh, you're trying to make it so that nothing is sexy. But it speaks to the need for affirmative consent, not just it. Look, if you're a bar for, you know, what's a good experience for you, it's just that the woman is not kicking and screaming. No, then you have a very low bar, my friend. You need to step your game up. You need to understand that if she's not into it, you shouldn't be into it either. Period. End of discussion, okay? And don't give me any of this nonsense about, well, you know, some guys it's just tough. There's never been a person more unlucky in love than me from the age of like 15 till 20. Okay. I'm sorry. Like I just had a lot of miserable experiences in there and I was really sad and lonely and pathetic. The point is that doesn't give you an excuse to violate what you ought to recognize is a standard for yourself of I'm not gonna do anything that's gonna make someone else uncomfortable when they're in my home. Like that just ought to be your baseline, and 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 the reason it's an example of the typical male behavior is because the typical male thinks about intimacy as a victory. It's I'm trying to smash. Look at the words we use. I'm trying to get that. I'm trying to hit that. I'm I'm trying to slide into the DMs. You know, it's all about I'm gonna achieve this conquest. And and that's the way a lot of guys think about it. And, and nowhere in that vocabulary is there anything about the woman having a good time or even going along for the ride willingly. It's all about, you know, I have to get mine. And it's it's pathetic and it's unhealthy and it's sick and it destroys a lot of women's, you know, days, weeks, months, years, lifetimes. It destroys some men's experiences and and self understandings. And that's the part I think that's so important for guys to get is that if you are frustrated about the way you see yourself and men and women, you have to save yourself from that sick thinking of this is a thing of conquest, this is a thing of, you know, achievement. It's supposed to be about unity between human beings. And, and if you want to look at it in just the base terms of snuggling, fine. You're both going to have a good time, right? I don't like watching a movie that my wife isn't into, okay? I don't want to watch that movie together. I'll watch it by myself. So, so part of being an adult is learning to recognize that everything you do with another person ought to be a joint effort. And I see. Sorry, he did not get that. And he, I don't know if he gets it now. But the crazy thing is, on his show, Master of None, he played a guy who was caught up in this media firestorm because his partner on TV was guilty of horrible sexual harassment. So again, you know, I would have hoped that he as an individual in his personal life would have been a little more conscious and a little more conscientious. Nope, apparently. I mean, you know, and again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. It's not like, again, the woman never accused him of rape. But that's, again, a low bar. And I want the people who make good art to be living better lives. And look, maybe that's an unrealistic expectation, right? You shouldn't meet your heroes, they say, because there's stuff that people have always done. There's always stuff people have done that is not great, right? But nevertheless, I can feel disappointed when my artistic heroes turn out to have done horrible things. And, you know, I'm hoping we're getting a new crop of people. You know, Lena Waithe is stepping up and she's doing some amazing work. And, um, I don't know, whatever. Okay. Um, so speaking of guns, um, and I'm all over the place today, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, here's a piece from the Hill by a woman named Mary Monjikian, an opinion contributor. I don't know. Anyway, um, She has a really good piece called You Can't Protect Liberty with a Firearm. And, uh, yeah, talking about the history of the Second Amendment. But the question we really need to be asking is, what are the main threats to democracy today? And could conventional weapons actually be used to defend ourselves, our families, or our republic against them? I don't think so. Most of the threats to democracy today have little to do with conventional warfare. One of the greatest threats to liberty today is the rise of new and different types of surveillance and the end of privacy as we know it. While conventional weapons could keep physical soldiers from crossing our thresholds and occupying our homes, today a tyrant would not have to even enter our physical home to take away our liberty, because most of us have a home security network, which includes devices like a Nest thermostat, a Google Home device, laptops, and iPads. A smart hacker could access these devices and turn them against us, collecting our household financial data, our passwords, or even spying on us through our own cameras. In this scenario, how useful would a gun be to keep government out of our homes? Another threat to democracy today is the apparently increasing support for authoritarian ideas and the increasing polarization of our citizens. In 2013, Russian General Valery Gerasimov laid out a Russian strategy for inciting anarchy and chaos in a region. He stated that in the future, wars will be fought with a 4 to 1 ratio of non military to military measures. These non military measures include information warfare techniques like subversion, espionage, propaganda, and cyber attacks. These measures could confuse the population and destroy their trust in their public institutions, including leadership and the media. And that's exactly what we've had. Um, So, yeah, it's a really important perspective. The notion of um, saving ourselves with guns is just ludicrous. Um yeah, I, I've, I've got these news stories. I feel like it's kind of silly for me to even go through them. I'm on 40 minutes now. Um, I'm actually going to save a lot of this stuff for next time, I think. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and delete some of these things that I've already talked about and maybe try to keep up next time with more current events. Um, and you know, maybe just save these for the the, the past, uh, past stories for a future podcast. I know that sounds weird, but whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's stuff here about the Grenfell Tower regulators put cost before safety. What a shock. Um, North Korea missile tests and stuff. Uh, but it, I feel like, again, it, it changes so quickly. The news keeps cascading. Um, but there's still a place for a more comprehensive, critical, historical, large picture perspective. I hope that I can provide something that's meaningful like that. Um, I don't know. I I feel like... Uh, I don't want to belabor the point I didn't do this particular episode as a way to try to you know um, cover everything it's not a traditional um, episode so I-, I think I'm actually just gonna pause it here I, I do want to play a little um, hip-hop that I made actually um, so yeah I'm gonna end with a little hip-hop segment to f- show off some lyrics that I spit recently
1: uh, one, two, one, two, uh.
0: So I don't remember how this came about But I was recently listening to the song Microphone Fiend by Eric B. and Rakim Which is really a great track And um, yeah, I wanted to spit something over it So I put on the instrumental And I just started writing And uh, this track came out And I call it Buffet Booth Because, well, you'll hear as soon as it starts playing.
1: At the buffet, I ain't on some kind of label you could locate to pay like hell. Just myself spitting bars like a sport. I got a cheap ass money and a USB port. Now, isn't that enough like a French number nine? Like a German saying no, like Japanese theater time? Crime cuts at the vegan delicatessen. Lyrics with somebody, not chaotic brain stressing. Messing around with IMs and and trophies, pushing on these corn sucker MCs, no please. And feed them to the trees Your are high-strung, Thor I'm forever more low-key See what I did there? No need to be scared Follow on the mental And you'll be prepared Not cut like an apple Or coupled up either Two puns in the pocket And I'm reaching for neither They just appear Unbidden, unbought So fraught with the darkness in my mind like black thought. Get to the roots in pursuit of the brain loot. Treasure chest packed with the world's best work. fruit. Serve them up high and blow up the spot like a fortunate quick in the middle of a pot. Luck bucks don't motivate me. That's why I teach thee. Giving fresh eyes to those you can't see. Be something real. Not a zombie or a troll or a fiend on patrol for the robots in the Matrix. Hate this if you hate it, but it's still got stated on the dot com stasis and the SoundCloud playlist. Wait, this just got complicated inverted, geeked out, mega nerd Oh my god, get it started! There. Now isn't that better? What's more important, free time or more cheddar? And hey, yeah, I got bills to pay, but you can't buy time from a used-up day. Say that we lived in a different kind of system, not based on isms, but built on wisdom. Isn't that the kind of world that makes more sense instead of hustling for dollars and barely making sense? Rents get paid late, has got a due date, dads working double-shift jobs he hates. Meanwhile, Wall Street gets paid, yes, afraid of no man or woman in the Congress. Well, maybe Warren or Sanders, they stay mad like Homer yelling stupid sexy Flanders. There it is, one last Simpsons connection. I drop a 30-rock blur just for perfection. And now I gotta ass with an ego inflection, who wants to get sick with this lyrical infection? Nah, you need to read the directions or move on to a different section.
0: So there it is. Uh, It is what it is. Deal with it. Yeah, so that's it. Um, show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, my website is The Floating Brain of S. Piotrowski, which is fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and mindfulness and lots of other stuff. Uh, shout-outs this week to you for listening, everyone who's shown so much love for the Mind Wipe book one and two, uh, Chinny and Tara for the packages, again, that's so nice of you, I really appreciate that, and the Duchess for being awesome. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy
1: man. Deal with hey, listen, it. Listen,
0: I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I gotta get yeah. done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions, ESP at FBESP.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I'm gonna stop talking now. Now,
1: turn on
0: Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOR
1: for details. Fight the power. So powerful.
0: And now it's lunchtime.